todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Peter Summit, the lead vocalist for a really exciting new rock band called Crashing Wayward. I've seen them perform here in Las Vegas a few times, and one of the things I love most about the band is the deepness of their lyrics, which is contrasted against upbeat music and a stylish image. So we're going to talk about that and I've also got the privilege of playing their new single, Stranger Days, which you'll hear about halfway into the podcast. But without further delay, here is Peter Summit. Hi, Peter. Hi, Stacy. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. But before we get into Crashing Wayward, I'd love to know how you got your start in music and who your influences are and how long you've been at it professionally. I always credit how I got into performing to uh, for my early love of karaoke. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it was huh. yeah, it was it was really the only opportunity that I had to uh, perform. Um, I didn't really know too many musicians, and kind of being in a band was a pipe dream. So uh, as soon as I was of an age where I can go and perform, that's that's what I did. And, um, you know, a little bit of liquid courage at that time definitely helped, but I loved it. And that really kind of triggered me into wanting to perform more and to really kind of start pursuing um, more of kind of like a life in music or a band. Um, so that and then Buck Cherry's song Lit Up came out on the radio. And I had just kind of made my way to Florida. It wasn't really working out with my dad. That song came on the radio and I said, forget it. I'm moving back to San Diego and I'm going to start a band for real this time. And that's pretty much what I did. So uh, what was your go-to karaoke song? Uh, I always really wanted to perform the songs that were either about, uh, you know, 10 minutes in length, at least, <laughs> you oh, know, man. so 
<laughs> yeah, Aeros Aerosmith Dream On, I would do Stairway to Heaven, you know, um, uh, just because I, I really love to perform. And it, I love to kind of, it wasn't one of those things where I just stood and read the mod. It was, I was jumping on tables. I was getting in people's faces. It was kind of like a love hate. Either you really hated me watching me do karaoke or you loved me. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I can't sing at all. So if I was going to do karaoke, I would definitely pick Wars Low Rider. It's like two minutes and there's really no singing involved. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, um, so, I mean, who would you say some of your vocal musical influences are now? I'm always going to go way back to the very impressionable years for me. The very first, uh, gosh, the very first song that I could really remember loving was Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. That's a great and, one. Yeah, to me, that was just like the greatest and at that time you didn't have video you know so you really thought you were listening to an rb song or you know by a black artist or it, you just really didn't even know what you're listening to it was just so universal you know and um i loved how queen they didn't stick to one genre you know i mean they they covered it all from r&b soul which is kind of like my, my very early influences um but fast forwarding uh, a few years up, I was sharing a room with my older brother, and he was really into uh, like post-punk, early goth, uh, dark wave kind of stuff. And he had the cult. And um, so he played love a lot. But when he brought home Electric and dropped the needle on that very first song, Wildflower, that was that's what hooked me. And so I'm always going back to the cult as the very one of the very most influential bands in my life. Um, so, you know, Queen, the cult, David Bowie, Michael Jackson's my all time favorite uh, uh, performer, artist. And then going back to, you know, James Brown, stuff like that. Uh, Lenny Kravitz. I really love people that kind of were not afraid to touch on any certain style or a subject, you know, what they were writing or performing and singing about. Well, that's a great eclectic mix that you draw from. And it does show on stage. I have seen Crashing Wayward perform in Las Vegas a few times now. And you guys quickly became a new favorite of mine. Um, to me, your sound does feel hard rock and post-grungish, which you mentioned, but it's also a little indefinable. Um, was that a natural thing or did you all endeavor to create that certain sound that you have? That was totally unintentional. It's just um, what you're hearing when you hear us or see us is truly just five guys from five different backgrounds playing what they love. And doing what I think we do best, you know, and we truly accept everybody within this band for what they do bring to the table. And I always really want to credit my band for giving me the opportunity to really be me and accept me and not really try to mold or shape me into something that I'm not, you know, um, they allow me to write my lyrics and to sing about what. I'm passionate about or really feel strongly about or, you know, from the heart, there's, 
nobody really trying to dictate within this band what we should sound like, what we should look like. It is, it is what it is. I kind of, I kind of think of us as more of kind of a art, even though we're not like an art rock band, like talking heads or something of that magnitude where we are a little bit more outside the box. And I think we really love being that, you know, and we were kind of pliable in the way that when we write, we're not afraid to touch on something that might be a little bit different because it's all about the song and what feels good and what feels good to us. And kind of going back to how eclectic I am with the music that I love and really kind of draw inspiration from, I think everybody's in the same in this band. So what you're hearing is truly um, us. It's purely authentic. And um, I'm just kind of excited to see where we kind of go from here because we kind of, we're just, we're just starting. That's true. Yes. And I, I agree that um, you are all seem to be in the moment and very cohesive on stage, which is a great thing that alchemy is not always easy to come by. So you lucked out there. Now, yeah. here's a question that I've never asked anyone on the show, and I've done almost 100 episodes now, but I'm intrigued by the name Crashing Wayward, and I'm wondering what the story is behind it. It's funny. That was uh, Stacy, our guitarist, Stacy David Blades, came up uh, with that name. Um, we were kind of sitting around, and at the time, we were in the early stages of COVID. So we were trying to put together this band and we were coming from a previous project that Stacy had been working on and uh, that kind of dissolved. So we kind of wanted to redirect since we just started working on some new songs and everything was taking a new direction. But in the current state of the world and how everybody was feeling, I think he kind of really drew inspiration from that uh crashing wayward is just like you know we're we were crashing forward uh but it's in any which way the wind's going to take us or any way that this energy and movement's going to take us we just want to keep pursuit uh pushing forward and um i like the wayward because it's kind of like unruly you know we can go anywhere kind of just like how it is about the music it's very evocative. Yeah. And I think it means different things to different people. When I first heard it, it it reminded me of those old stories of sailors being um, seduced by sirens and mermaids and crashing on the rocks. And, you know, so there's a lot of different things you could do with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you say that. I actually uh, working on a new song right now called Amnesia, and I actually use uh, the subject uh, of sirens calling one to shore kind of. So I'll have to share that with you if we ever get that tracked. <laughs> I love that already. Yes, for sure. Now your album Listen is also just a great name for an album. It does say it all. Um, but uh, now most of your songs are short and you had mentioned earlier that you love to sing very long karaoke songs. Um, but why is that? Is that because people's attention spans are shorter now or what's the uh logic behind that it, it i think it has a lot to do with because people's attention spans the uh, it is very short you know um unfortunately these days you know uh, i wonder what andy warhol would say you know 15 minutes <laughs> right. now five seconds right so uh it you know you got to be quick and you gotta or uh chorus don't bore us and um but at the same time 
it there is can be a little bit of challenge in trying to say what I might try to say in a song and try to get us there with and and have kind of like a story or direction before we do get to that chorus. So I do like to work uh, with kind of like different tiers of melodies, you know, to get us to that chorus in hopes that I can convey the message or the story that I'm telling. But David Harris, our guitarist, is a big advocate for shorter songs. And we kind of like just followed his um, his guidance with that. And it it's kind of fallen naturally now moving forward within the band. We're kind of just writing that way. Um, I think that it gives the opportunity for somebody to listen to the song and hear the song and then wait and be like, what? It's over. I got to hear it again. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, and there's nothing raw. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, I can listen to that, you know, time and time again or something, you know, I mean, even though it's like an eight minute song, it's, it's not long enough for me. Um, but I think that there's too many very few songs that can actually do that in that kind of length where most people might get kind of bored, you know? Uh, so I think we're just kind of comfortable in where we're at right now with keeping the songs a little bit shorter and keeping them sweet and making people uh, in hopes that they want to hear it over and over and over and over again. Well, you're on the uh, RFK media label, which is owned by Ron Keel, whom I had on this podcast a couple of months back. And uh, we were actually talking about Crashing Wayward on that episode. And he's such a great champion for new music. And I understand that your drummer, Sean, made the introduction. How did that all come about? Yeah, so Sean knew ron i think the going back about 20 years when ron was here in las vegas and doing his uh country western i believe he was doing a tribute at that time uh sean started playing with him in a k a version called k2 of keel and uh so they just kind of been friends for a very very long time and with um ron having his label krfk uh sean had been sending him some early works of ours uh from the very first release that we did which goes back with breathe with the original um mix to that we released in i believe uh december of 21 and uh so Ron would play that very supportive. And then he played uh, Disco Kills uh, and was very supportive, just like, you know, that was great. And uh, Sean sent him Stranger Days and it was kind of like radio silence for about three weeks. And then Ron hit up Sean and said, dude, what was that you just sent me? That song wrecked my day. And from that, uh, we scheduled a call to uh, talk to Ron about signing to his newly formed label and the rest is history. So yeah, Sean has everything to credit with that. And um, yeah, so it's been a great kind of uh, relationship so far. I love Ron. He's uh, a strong, like you said, strong advocate for new music. And that's something that we're really kind of pushing with him. You know, it's like, we're new. Let's like, let's take this outside this box direction. And uh, so he's really open to ideas and uh, he has a lot of, you know, experience and input. So. Exactly. And as speaking of experience and influences, you mentioned your guitarist, Stacy David Blades, who um, Ron and Stacy are a few 
years apart in age, but they did both come up on the Sunset Strip as musicians in the hair metal days. And um, did they know each other before all this? Or like, I'm imagining that a lot of those people were interconnected. Yeah, I I don't know how far back Stacy and Ron go, but they definitely knew each other. It was kind of like, it was Sean, you know, that really brought us to the table with Ron. Um, and I know that uh, within that, Stacy was having talks with him as well, too. But um, yeah, I don't really know how far they go back. The funny thing is, is uh, I knew Stacy uh, prior to probably about three years before he joined LA Guns. And we oh, okay. were both, I was in a San Diego band at that time that just started playing LA quite a bit. So we started having mutual friends and we've been hanging out uh, quite a bit. So, and at that time there was like this really good emerging like street rock, uh, just like kind of like almost edgy punk, you know, that was happening in Hollywood again. And I think that really kind of came going back to that Buck Cherry first album mm -hmm. resurgence. So that's how I got to know Stacy. I want to talk a little bit about the production of your album, because to have um, Mike Gillis, the producer of pretty much all of Metallica's albums and so many others. Um, I mean, imagine that must have been pretty amazing. Um, what was that like? Tell me about the experience. And also, what did he bring to the final mixes? Because I feel like a producer almost becomes a member of the band in that moment when you're making an album. Yeah, absolutely. Mike definitely was and is like the sixth member of the band. He's worked on albums that have sold in excess of 150 million, you know, and he's he's wow. worked with, yeah, the great, I mean, uh, 25 years with Metallica, um, you know, the cult. Uh, he's done some stuff with Motley Crue, uh, Our Lady Peace, Shania Twain. I mean, he's kind of like, uh, I think he's done some stuff with Brian Adams, too. I could be misquoting. Wow, legendary. Yeah, but yeah his his brother is uh, Bob Rock, too. So, you know, he's coming with a lot of expertise and a lot of knowledge. What's really cool about him is we presented him with these demos and he got it. There wasn't like, there wasn't like a a ton of uh, restructuring of songs, you know, kind of like uh, there was a lot of more like creative input as, as far as sounds and, and um, kind of like capturing the performance and stuff like that. I know I can speak really more about my experience with him in the studio uh -huh. because when I come in, I track my vocals is, you know, I want to be just me and Mike. And I want to be kind of, it's just us and we're just working and we're just trying to get the best performance possible. And he really gets me where there, I have this kind of um, inflection, you know, or tonality sometimes that some people might say that's kind of Bono-esque, you know, and where there's some real vulnerability. And I love to have that come out and he got that and he would kind of really draw these incredible performances i guess what i would consider the my best performances ever um and he really gave me the opportunity to dial in songs and try it until we got it right it wasn't just run through the song you know two three times and then he was going to comp it and piece it all together and say okay we got it it was we did it until it was right 
And there was some times where I thought I got it right, drove back to San Diego, called him up and said, I got to do that again. And I drove back out to Las Vegas (laughs) and redid it. So he was very gracious. Um, I love Mike. You know, I had him come out. He he was at my wedding. He flew to my wedding in Seattle. Um, I think of him as kind of like a brother in bonds of this, um, you know, musical journey together. And I, I hope to work with him again. Well, that's fantastic. Well, uh, we've been talking so much about the music. I want to take a moment to listen to a crashing wayward song. So what are we going to hear right now? Uh, we're going to hear our next single, Stranger Days. And is there any little story behind that? Or? Well, yeah. The, so this one's about, actually, it's kind of really about self-reflection. Um, as we get older, we kind of, you know, think about our relationships in our past, whether it's love or family or you know, friend, but it's just kind of like maybe something that has, you might've let go or didn't necessarily nourish in the way that you should have. And, uh, and, but it's also kind of like in hopes of inspiring, you know, like a love uh, and, and nurturing a love, not maybe kind of like moving forward. Maybe you let one go, but now that you have an opportunity to love again, nourish what you do have and and nurture it and let it grow all right here it is
person, uh, it really is kind of a, a rock and roll nightmare in a way because of the dark subject matter that inspired you all in writing the songs. So I'm wondering if you can share one or two of the stories behind the songs. I mean, the, the whole album is very personal. Uh, it's uh, really kind of dove deep in writing um, the songs to this, but probably the two most personal are the tracks Tilly and Velvet's Drawn. Tilly was inspired by um, Stacy has a friend whose daughter during COVID had taken her own life. Um, so that was the major inspiration be, uh, behind Tilly. So that for me was probably one of the most, um, one of the most personal because I too struggle with uh, depression, you know, and sometimes self-confidence and such. So even to this day, when I hear that song, I I can get emotional as if it's somebody singing it to me. Wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like an out of body experience, you know, the way that it was written. It just kind of wrote itself within about fifteen minutes. Um, I came in from San Diego to either track or do some rehearsal, and Stacy had sent me the uh, the uh, guitar work uh, prior to that and asked me what I thought about it, and I loved it. And then he pulled up a photo of this girl, Erin, who is Tilly, who took her life. And I saw her fuchsia hair. I saw her smile in that photo, and it just, like, triggered me. And I wrote that song in 15 minutes. And um, I'm hoping that it kind of resonates with people in a way that, you know, they are – anybody that does struggle in that way is not alone and that there is – you know, a brand new day and, you know, one day at a time and just kind of get through the day and let's start again tomorrow. Yeah. Um, these reminders are constantly needed and in new fresh ways. So I think it's good that you have a, that song that's out now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I struggle with it every day. I, I was this morning, so, <laughs> but I'm happy to be here with you, you know? So there's always something that kind of gets us uh, to the next you know, and so this conversation with you helps me get to the next. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that we can have these conversations. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, to quote you, it was either from the press release or another um, interview that you did. Listens, lyrical content covers intolerance, mental health, suicide, love, loss and political unrest. So this isn't lightweight party band stuff. <laughs> It has a, but you know, I feel like it has a sense of joy or hope. I mean, it's not doomy, gloomy, you know, goth rock or anything like that. Um, but it's music that I feel like it's equally good to listen to by yourself or live with a fun crowd. So, how did you guys find that balance? So, I love kind of like that contrast between, you know, kind of like deep, meaningful lyrics, but in a way that is joyful and happy and. You know, I it's kind of like um, the Smiths, you know, Morrissey is just so he's yeah, if, if you just hear Morrissey on you cut the music, it sounds pretty sad. But Johnny Marr brings that joy, you know, with the guitar and his melodies and lines and everything that, that I think we kind of have something in that where if you hear us and you're not listening to the lyrics, it's it's a good time. And yeah. if you do see it perform, we're performing it as if we're like Iggy Pop and the Stooges, you know, um, and it's it's full on in your face. It's performance. It's 
trying to connect with people. You know, we're, we're trying to connect and I want to pull people out of any kind of like maybe personal struggles or anything that might be holding them down or sadness, whatever. I want that to be left at the door at the venue. And when they see us, they leave exuberated. You know, they are joyful, even though some of the subject matters and the topic or the lyrics might be a little bit more sad and such. Uh, it's the way that we deliver them and perform them that does give it that little sense of joy. And I, I've always been heavily inspired by anthemic melodic verses and choruses, you know, like early new wave Duran Duran and going back to Freddie Mercury, who was the king of that, mm -hmm. uh, where it kind of like, you can take a sad song, but if you, in the way that you deliver it, you can pull that sadness out and uplift. And so that's really what I try to bring to the table. And I know my band kind of does the same thing and, and they're very supportive with me allowing to do that as well. Yeah, well, I want to segue a little bit to image um, away from content, because um, you and I do share a common interest in vintage clothing. And judging from your Instagram handle, which is Thin Dark Duke, <laughs> you are a David Bowie fan, which you mentioned earlier. But um, can you talk a little bit about how image and sound go hand in hand in rock? Yeah, I think that you know, most people tend to listen with their eyes first. And I do know that I am guilty of that for sure. Um, David Bowie, Brian Ferry, Nick Cave, Lenny Kravitz, um, everybody in The Clash. These guys are so cool. They have so much swagger that even if they sounded terrible, I would still listen to them. <laughs> uh, and thankfully they don't. They're all amazing. Right. Yeah. So I know for me, fashion, fashion is going back before music. Fashion was always my first love. My dad, when I was very young, would take me to stores like, you know, even though he couldn't afford it, he would take me to Neiman Marcus and we would pull out a Giorgio Armani shirt and he would show me the tailoring and how the patterns line up from the sleeve to the chest and how they, you know, how the stitching should be and, and the fabrications. And that always res that always stuck with me. And I always wanted to be that kind of like dress my personality. And, and I always wanted to wear suits. So I always want to have an opportunity to have a crazy suit collection, which I have fortunately been able to have now. And, uh, it's gotten expensive performing in some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not endorsed by anybody right now. Hopefully one of these days, but yeah, at our last show, I was wearing Giorgio, Giorgio Romani slacks and I did a, a, a knee slide. And after the, after the show, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that beautiful white jacket that you started out with at your album launch party here in Las Vegas. Oh. That was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. That was a Burberry. So that was uh, like a silk Burberry. And I'm like, I I'm risking everything performing in these clothes. But well, hey, I you know, I Instagram is forever. So we're all taking pictures of you in these things. So all right. you got to do yeah. it. Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you um, mentioned David Byrne earlier, who's also oh, a fashion yeah. icon. And and I'm yeah. actually right now I'm in my office and I'm looking at a picture of Grace Jones, who was also a, 
very fashionable performer, but um, you know, long before social media and even before MTV, the only way fans had to see their favorite rock stars were album covers and sometimes concerts or maybe a quick TV appearance on Don Kirshner's rock concert or something. Yeah. But like I said, everything's changed since social media because we're all posting pictures of you on Instagram. Um, but I feel like there's kind of a lack of mystique on the one hand, but on the other, you have better and direct access to your fans. I mean, how do you feel about all that? Um, I think that either either way, the way I the way I feel about it probably won't be popular with some people. But I really, I if on my own personal Instagram, I really don't post a lot. I'm kind of private in that way. You yeah, know, I haven't I, seen a picture of your lunch on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, going back to like, uh, you know, if David, if I saw David Bowie posting his lunch, or you know stuff like that, I'd probably be like a little bummed. Mm -hmm. uh, I was listening to uh, this interview uh, with uh, my friend Mike Squires and uh, Richard Fortas, and they were talking about kind of Instagram the way thing, and they were talking about Mick Jagger. They're like, it's kind of like uncool now that he, sh you know, I, I know everything about his daily life, you know, because yeah. of that big yeah. gone. The access is kind of fun in a way. I mean, you know, yeah. as a teenage girl, I loved Led Zeppelin. I was totally into Led Zeppelin and I had to get the latest magazine and, you know, but I don't know, they wouldn't be as interesting, I guess, if I knew about their everyday life back then. I don't know. You're right. You bring up a good totally. point. Yeah, it kind of takes away the cool. And I, I think what um, also, too, what I really loved about how things worked, uh, Not, I mean, I really wasn't even that long ago, you know, I think that everything is truly, truly changed within 15 years. But, you know, there was a time where an artist or a band, they put out an album and then three years later, you you finally see the new video and you finally see the new album and they've kind of changed direction in their style. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, wow, it's cool again. Now, like, I, I feel like because everything is so out there all the time and oversharing everybody's thoughts about everything, it's like, I really don't care. I just want to hear music, man. <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of like it desensitizes and I don't want to be desensitized. It's almost like I don't want to like what they said. You don't want to meet your idols, right? Well, I don't want to see what my idols are posting every day in their everyday normal life. Well, this is my favorite question to ask at the end of every show. So what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare, Peter? Uh, man, I got like a couple I haven't had anything like too crazy uh, performance wise on my end. I've had, I've been in a couple of shows before where my uh, bandmates were beyond annihilated. And this was in Malibu and we had the guys from uh, Incubus there and uh, yeah, we couldn't perform, but that wasn't like too, that's like kind of like everybody, everybody. Yeah, that's like it. normal. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? That's not a, yeah, that's it was, an everyday occurrence yeah. for in totally. the rock world. Totally. I guess ripping your Armani pants could be one of your rock and roll. That's nights. an absolute nightmare. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, but I think like uh, I have anxiety, you know, kind of going back to that kind of like depression, anxiety. So before a show, I, I'm never nervous for a show. I'm always excited. But the day of the show, I give myself anxiety in a way that I feel like I won't be able to perform. My voice won't, isn't there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have that kind of like fear all the time. But what I really hope does not happen is, is that just like Terminator, who knew that Terminator was going to be such a prophecy, you know, that here we are, that AI is kind of like such a topic in music now. So yes. I think greatest nightmare is that Terminator in the form of AI music is going to destroy the true art of musicianship and writing, you know, so, and composing. So to me, that's the greatest nightmare. And that's what we should all be scared about, honestly. (laughs) I agree. Well, though you don't post much, I'm wondering what the best place for fans to find and follow you online is. I do know that the band has a website, which is often updated. Yes. So you can, uh, I'm very active on the band socials. So my own personal social is at the, uh, at thin dark Duke. What is it? Thin dot dark dot Duke, but you can find me everywhere at crashing wayward. Um, and that's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, uh, threads. Gosh, it's like, wow. How do you keep up? I don't know. I, you know what, honestly, I miss the days of MySpace. Really, <laughs> right. That was a great uh, meeting place for bands. I loved it too. It was, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was the last. That was the real last spot for bands, really, to kind of like meet and connect and get people to come to their shows. So I really do miss that. But yeah, well, you can get us. Yeah, we music got what wherever we got now. So yes, so everywhere you're crashing wayward. Everywhere and that's how we can find you. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show, Peter. Well, thank you, Stacey. I enjoyed talking with you and uh, I hope I can do it again with you sometime soon. Absolutely. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K dash N- dash r-o-l-l dash nightmares.com our official theme song is she's out for blood by fuzzbuster founded by lars cabot thank you for listening Wish